Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back of the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series studying one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Ephesians. Dr. Newfeld begins this series called Empowered Living with a message entitled Discovering Your Spiritual Resources. Years ago, I remember reading a true story of Homer and Langley Collier. Now, these two men both died in their home amidst a stack of filth that boggles the imagination. Although they had been left an inheritance that made them rich, and although they had both earned college degrees from Columbia University, they had become misers and hoarders. After the discovery of the death of the brothers, garbage collectors took over 140 tons of useless collected garbage out of their home. The two brothers had enough money to live in the lap of luxury, but instead lived in filth and squalor. You know, I first read about them in a book by John MacArthur entitled Our Sufficiency in Christ. MacArthur used their story to tell in his thoughts how some Christians do live in filth, not knowing the glorious inheritance they have in Christ. Now, it is true that a great many Christians do live a life not knowing either who they are in Christ or what Christ has made available to them. It was these thoughts that led me to write a book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. You know, I was concerned that there are Christians who do live in spiritual poverty, not knowing the size of their spiritual bank account. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. He's offered us forgiveness from our sins and freedom from the slavery to sin. He's lavished his wisdom upon us. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. We were once dead in sins, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of his grace. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Every barrier that ever prevented us from becoming full participants in the body of Christ has been torn down. Sin has lost its ability to control us. All the demons of hell are powerless against us. We're brought into the light and clothed with the Lord Jesus himself. And yet some of us do lead spiritually poverty-stricken lives. We live in spiritual bankruptcy while the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. Our problem is that we don't know how to access that wealth. We hear that others have, but we don't know how to get it ourselves. If you feel this struggle, I have good news. Now, I'm beginning a new series in the book of Ephesians, and I'm calling this series Empowered Living. And over the next two weeks, I'll go through only chapters 1-1 to chapter 2, verse 10, and then I'll take a short break, and then we'll get right back into the book. And so today, as a way of introducing this series, I'm simply entitling today's message, Discovering Your Spiritual Resources. You know, we live in a day in which many of us understand the value of being empowered. People who know their resources are thought to have an advantage over those who don't. For instance, if you're suffering from an illness and know where to access medical resources, you'll likely feel empowered rather than helplessly adrift in your struggles with your illness. If you know your resources when investing your money, chances are you're going to invest wisely and make the most of what you have. If you know your resources when something in your home is broken, you probably won't simply try to get used to the fact that something doesn't work anymore. Even if you're not a handy man or a handy woman, you know who to call. Well, the same is true of every life endeavor. Knowledge, as we say, is power. Now, all of this is true in the spiritual realm. It seems especially sad then that many believers in Christ are unaware of their spiritual resources. 
We may be in the midst of a struggle with sin or encountering a satanic attack or overwhelmed by temptation from the world around us, and we're uncertain where to turn or what to do. We don't know our resources. You know, I've often spoken to people who are constantly failing in some area of their lives, and so, you know, they'll go to counselors and seminars and read self-help books and talk to anyone who's going to listen. It's either the promises of the Bible are untrue or you're missing something. The book of Ephesians offers us the answers. It it tells us that we can live a life of power. It declares where the life of power lies. It unfolds our place in the eternal plan of God. It declares the ancient mystery behind the church. It tells us our place in the church. It, It sets us free by unlocking the riches of the resources that are found only in Christ. It gives us victory over spiritual warfare. You know, once we know and tap into the resources that we have in Christ, nothing can stop us from being everything we were meant to be. So think about it. Now, in order to set the stage for our study in Ephesians, let me share why we believers today, that is you, my dear listener, why it is that you so desperately need what is contained in this letter. And we need to know how to apply this letter to ourselves as well. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written somewhere around AD 60. You know, this letter belongs to a group of four letters called the prison epistles or the prison letters. They include this book or letter and the book of Philippians and then Colossians and Philemon. All four of these letters would have been written in very close proximity to one another while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, perhaps even while he's chained to a Roman guard. And so you might therefore expect there would be, you know, much sadness in these four letters. After all, Paul the great missionary now found that his ministry of founding churches in city after city seemed to be over. And you might expect that Paul would write pleading with people to pray for his release from prison to the end of his suffering. But in fact, there's almost no sadness or pity in any of the four prison letters at all. In fact, when he refers to himself, Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He thought his prison sentence was serving the eternal plan of God, and he was deeply satisfied with that. You know, Philippians is often called the joyful letter, as Paul describes to believers how they might live joyfully in trials and in persecution. Philemon is written to a slave owner, teaching him how slaves and masters can transform their relationship and become brothers in Christ. And Colossians is written to combat false teaching and false mystery religions, And so it presents Christ as the expression of the true mystery of God. But Ephesians, well, this book is perhaps the most fascinating of the four. It has the grandest picture of Christ in all the books of Paul, and indeed, it has the most complete and comprehensive package as to how to live a victorious Christian life. So why do we need the letter? Well, we need the letter because it tells us how to live victoriously. The man who wrote this letter knew how to abound in all things, even in prison. He understood that the internal spiritual condition of the believer made all the difference. No matter what your circumstances, you can live in the abundance of a reservoir of spiritual resources in Christ. Many of us don't know how to do that. So we're sick and we quickly cry to God for healing, which is okay. But how many of us cry to God to to capture the mind of Christ in all things? And there's a reason for that. You see, we've not yet learned how to abound in Christ in all things. And we need this letter to tell us how to live victoriously. Paul wrote this letter as an encyclical. And what I mean is that he sent the letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus first, 
and then it was intended to be passed to a series of other churches in other cities by his representative, a man by the name of Tychicus. So in effect, it was intended not only for the Ephesians, but it it was intended for an audience that covered churches in the entire Roman province of Asia Minor. That's, for instance, why you won't find personal greetings in this book, as is in most of Pauline literature. That's also why it doesn't address any single problem a local church faced. Paul meant this book for the widest possible audience. He was able to step back from the conflicts of false teaching and church disputes, of trouble with persecution, and all the other things that local churches faced. Instead, he afforded himself the opportunity in his imprisonment to reflect and write about God's great design in Christ. In a sense, this is Paul's masterpiece. It allowed him to put together all he had taught in one small tract and to tell about how the believer had been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. A few remarks about the language we find in this book. Scholars have noticed that the vocabulary in this book is unlike the vocabulary that Paul uses in other books. Paul had in mind to take us to breathtaking new heights about the nature of the Christian life. See, this book presents us with a complete picture of the Christian life. But it's not as if Paul is completely unconcerned for what was happening in Ephesus. He obviously chose to write a letter that would first be delivered to that city. So let's learn a few things about Ephesus. Ephesus at the time of Paul was a very important city. It was a city of some 500,000 people. It served not only as the capital, but also as the most important city in Asia Minor. It's commonly agreed that it was among the top five cities of the Roman Empire. And if you don't know it, the city of Ephesus in recent years has been the subject of a massive archaeological study. About 20% of the city has been excavated, it's been dug up, and it's utterly fascinating. Years ago, one of my dreams came true. I had an opportunity to visit the remains of the city, and I must say, it was stunning. Ephesus at the time of Paul was a port city located on the Mediterranean Sea, was filled with theaters and baths and libraries. The streets of the city were paved with pure marble. From the harbor to the city center, it was a magnificent street called the Arcadian Way. It was a road which was 70 feet wide with Roman columns on either side. Imagine coming to a city by the sea and being greeted with that sight. And that was just the beginning. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Newfeld's entire CD series, God and Money as our free Bible teaching resource, and and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. The most notable feature of the city of Ephesus was that it boasted what was now been called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. At the far northern end of the city was the Temple of Diana. It was a structure about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. 
It was believed that the image of the goddess Diana had fallen directly from heaven. She was depicted as a woman with many breasts, and so she was seen as a goddess who inspired a fertility cult. With it were many forms of deviant sexual behavior, all thought to be pathways of spirituality and enlightenment. Not only was the Temple of Diana a place of worship, it was also a sanctuary for every kind of criminal in the entire Roman Empire. It was the law in Ephesus that no one would be arrested for any crime, whatever, when within a bowshot of the walls of the temple. And so all around the temple was a village full of you know, thieves and murderers and every sort of criminal. And when I read Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, you know, I can't help but wonder how that verse must have sounded to the people who lived within the shadow of the temple of Diana. That's the section that says that Christian marriage is the reproducing of the relationship of Christ to his church. What a contrast that was to the city of Ephesus. You know, on the one hand is the goddess of pornography and crime, and on the other hand is Christ awaiting a pure virgin bride. It's a contrast between Christian spirituality and pagan spirituality. That's the background to the letter. That's also why this letter is so relevant. I mean, switch on your TV at any time, and you'll find a virtual replaying of the Temple of Diana with with all its sexual perversity and its glorifying of crime. And we need to immerse ourselves in Christian spirituality. Acts 19 tells us of Paul's arrival in that city, and it was while he was on his second missionary journey. So let's read Acts 18, 19 to 21. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Then go to Acts 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And then to Acts 19, 8 to 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, obviously the city became Paul's center for evangelism in the entire region. It was here at Ephesus that he wrote the Corinthian letters. It was here that he worked with the church, and it was here that Paul developed a particularly close relationship with the Ephesian elders. The reason Paul, when writing this book, wrote the Ephesians first was because he knew it was the most effective means of touching the entire Roman province of Asia. So what is the book about? The book of Ephesians is one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline. The first three chapters are doctrinal, and the last three are practical. We might put it another way. The first three teach us what is true, and the next three tell us what to do about it. As we study this book, we will be required to remember that doctrine and action, truth and living it out, are always a part of the same package. You can't read Ephesians without being reminded of that. Let me put it another way. We might say that the first three chapters tell us of the spiritual privileges of being a Christian. And the last three chapters present us with the spiritual responsibilities of being a Christian. Let's break it down. If you were to look at the first three chapters, well, we might describe the book in this way. 
The first three chapters describe the rich advantages of being in Christ. And so let me ask you, what are the advantages of having Christ in you? Well, the first three chapters of Ephesians list at least six advantages. Number one, you have a relationship with a triune God. You'll find that in the first 14 verses of the book. You'll learn that it was the Father who chose you, the Son who redeemed you, and the Holy Spirit who marked you as his own. Number two, God can open your eyes so that you might be able to see your spiritual inheritance. In chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul prays that the believers might see the authority and power they have in Christ. Number three, you've been rescued from sin and been given the power to live in grace. That's in chapters 2, 1 to 10. And that's as far as we're going to go before we take a break, but that's a powerful moment to stop. And number four, you've been included in the people of God. That's in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And number five, through participation in the church, you can gain insight into the mystery of Christ. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And finally, number six, you've been given power to persevere, the power to hang in there over the long haul. That's in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And that completes the first three chapters or the doctrinal content of the letter. It describes the rich relationship we have with Christ. Now, on the practical side, chapters 4 to 6, that section describes the unique responsibilities of being a Christian, and there are four of them. Number one, we'll find that we must work to maintain the unity of the church. That's in chapter 4, 1 to 6. Here we learn our spiritual gifts and our part in the work of Christ. Number two, we must learn to live with a sense of personal holiness. That's a part of a longer section from chapter 4, verse 17 through to chapter 5, verse 21. This will cover everything from proper sexual conduct to gossiping to attitudes towards money. It's very practical. Number three, we learn, we must learn how to live at home and at work. That's in chapter 5, 22 to 6, 9. And number four, and finally, we must learn how to engage the forces of darkness. That's from chapter 6, 10 to the end of the book. So then summing it all up, what is the book about? Well, it contains a unique combination of faith and action. It describes our spiritual resources. It outlines our spiritual responsibilities. It describes what God has done for us, but it also describes, no, no, not what we must do for God. That's not it. It describes that we have a role to play in participating with what God has done for us. Let me try to put it another way. If it is true, and it is, that we have been called upon to recognize that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world and that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless, if that's all true, is it then also true that we have no role to play in our holiness? After all, it was already predestined, right? Well, listen to Ephesians 4, to 24, which calls us to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, Ephesians will teach you to, to be balanced about your resources. Yeah, you have more resources than you had ever imagined. But having these resources should engage us more in the serious work of holiness. Now, one more word about how to approach this book. If you bear with me and follow me through this entire study, you'll wonder at times that I'm progressing so slowly. And here's the answer. Each word in this book is so weighty, you have to stop and ponder each one. It's as if Paul invests the weight of eternity in every single word. 
to go quickly is a crime against the book. So we're going to start slowly. Ephesians 1, 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By using the term apostle, Paul identifies his divinely bestowed authority to speak on God's behalf. He tells us that what we're about to read did not originate in his own mind. He's been chosen by Jesus Christ himself to speak on behalf of God. So before we read Ephesians, we need to settle that question. It is the question of authority. So the letter identifies where it came from. Secondly, the book is for the saints. And some of you will now say, well, I guess that's not me. I I ain't no saint. But this book wants to make the point that every single person who has invited Christ into his or her life has become a saint. A saint is someone who's been set apart by Jesus to be holy. And finally, this book identifies what it will do. It begins by offering a blessing. Grace is God's kindness towards those who are undeserving of his favor. Peace is both peace with God, but it's also an internal condition that brings spiritual prosperity and completeness regarding our external circumstances. All of us need this dual blessing of grace and peace. We need it so that we might know our vast spiritual resources. Thanks so much, John. I wonder if you can speak into the tragedy that so many Christians live powerless lives because they just don't tap into the resources that God has provided. Now, isn't that a tragedy? I mean, you're right by calling it a tragedy. Um, You know, I guess what I'm going to have to say is, you know, please, uh, brothers and sisters, if you're listening to me, uh, learn to read your Bible, read it slowly, read it carefully, and especially in the Pauline literature, uh, the letters of Paul, the resources that God has provided you are articulated there, um, you know, to not read, to not incorporate that, not to, you know, to, to meditate on that, begin to think, I mean, what has God given me? Um, and then to complain to the Lord and say, you know, why is my life in such poverty? Uh, that just doesn't make any sense at all. So there's homework for you. Be more diligent, listen, and of course, Ephesians will do wonders for you. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in Ephesians, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Today, there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm, I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh-Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca 
or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.